Welcome to uh, Two Way Street. I'm Bill Nygut. It's really a pleasure to have all of you with us this afternoon. You know, there's something of a milestone for us here on Two Way Street. Um, I don't think it's any secret, and we're not trying to hide it. Uh, Two Way Street usually comes to you uh, as a recorded uh, show with the uh, authors and various artists that we have on. Today, we are live in the uh, GPB Talk Studio uh, to uh, share with you a conversation about books. Um, so that m- m- makes the uh, point that I w- or I want to make a point about that. Um, because we're live, you can contribute to the conversation. Go to the Two Way Street Facebook page and um, tell us what your favorite novels. We're going to talk fiction today. So uh, send us your choices, and we'll uh, uh, try to get to some of them as we go through the show. Uh, this program is pegged to the beginning of a major project at PBS. Uh, the television network on May 22nd, next Tuesday night, is going to launch what they're calling The Great American Read. They have uh, surveyed more than 7,000 people around the country and come up with a list of 100 novels that the people they talked to said are their favorites. Tuesday night, they'll unveil that list, uh, talk with uh, people about why they chose the books they did, and then they're offering you all the chance to go to their website, which we'll post on the Two Way Street uh, Facebook page and our website, and uh, you can vote for your favorite. Uh, In the fall, they'll be back, and they'll do a series of shows. It'll be a countdown to picking uh, the one book, that America says is their favorite. So uh, that's the peg for today's show, and I'm thrilled to have... I We have a group in the studio. You know how sometimes you say, if you could put together your fantasy dinner party, who would be part of it? I think the people here in the studio today would be among them. Jessica Handler, creative writing teacher at Oglethorpe University. She's been a guest on Two Way Street before talking about her very beautiful and heartfelt memoir about her own family. Uh, and are, you're working on a new book now. Thanks, Bill. I have a book coming out from Hub City Press in next spring called The Magnetic Girl. It's my third book and my first novel. Well, so, that's exciting that you're, exciting. Gonna, you're going to fiction for the first time. Sitting next to you is Chuck Reese. He is the uh, founder and the editor-in-chief of Bitter Southerner, the uh, online magazine that many of you are aware of an extraordinary magazine about the culture and arts in the South. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Bill. How you doing? I'm great. I'm glad you're uh, in the studio with us. Uh, we also have Kevin Glass. He is the uh, headmaster of the Atlanta International School in Atlanta, but he's an artist at heart. Kevin, you grew up where in England? So originally in the northeast of, of England, Bill, and went off to university in Manchester and then to Cambridge, and it was in Cambridge that I followed my love of theater and formed a stand-up comedy cabaret theater production company. You name it, we did it, we acted. <laughs> Anything that would pay us, we would do. <laughs> you toured it, didn't you? Weren't you out on the, on the road with your company? We did. It was called MKM Productions, and we took shows on tour from Cambridge uh, to London, up to the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Festival, uh, did stand-up, did some radio. Again, you name it, if it brought in some some money, uh, we were up for it. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting that um, of the 100 books on the PBS list, 64 uh, were written by Americans, uh, which means the rest uh, were not. 61 are set in the United States, the rest are not. Uh, so we'll get uh, Kevin's British perspective on uh, his favorite novels. And I'm really thrilled 
uh, to introduce Virginia Prescott. Virginia is the brand new host of On Second Thought. Uh, The GPB radio morning show airs here every day at 9 a.m. Virginia comes to us from New Hampshire Public Radio, and I think you know how happy we all are that you have arrived, Virginia. Well, I am absolutely thrilled to be here, especially to be invited to this particular fake dinner party. And, you know, I'm just waiting for the food. When is it coming? (laughs) All right. Let's start with a very basic question. Uh, Why why read? Why do you feel reading is still important? I I said at the very top of the show, we have so many distractions, electronic distractions now. Why are you reading, Virginia? Well, there is so much going on that demands our immediate attention and, you know, Information is being gobbled up 140 characters a minute, and people often talk about things coming to us like as as if through a fire hose, and we're trying to drink from a fire hose. I think a novel is a little bit more like taking a little sherry glass in that fire hose and taking a sip, pausing for a moment. And there's a lot of research about how novels affect us and change our ability for empathy and change our sort of theory of mind. And that is a value that means something to me. I know it doesn't mean it's something to everybody, but I feel like the novel is essential for connecting us to what is human. I agree with you, Virginia, and I think that I like the sherry glass image because I, I find that with this fire hose of information, and I, I read a great deal, I read novels, I read um, nonfiction, that it takes um, focus and a willingness to immerse yourself in someone else's imagination and someone else's story. And it's a great joy and it's a relief and it inspires my own creativity as well. And my love of language. When I see a beautiful sentence or a beautiful paragraph, it's like watching acrobatics. And I just go, how, how did that happen? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I, I tend to think back to where I was when I was young. You grew up in a place like LNJ, Georgia in the 1960s and seventies, you know, not so isolated now, a bit more isolated back then. And if you wanted to see a world beyond, that was what you did. You picked up a novel. And now in my old age, particularly with this fire hose turned on us, Hmm. I sort of feel like I get more truth out of a novel that's well-written than I do from, you know, two hours worth of news. Interesting. Kevin, I I don't know about you, but you're, you, you feel a hunger sometimes. You have to have some you got to have some art of some sort, whether it's walking to an art museum, whether it's listening to a beautiful piece of music, whether it's picking up a novel, your soul gets hungry for that. Absolutely, Bill. And so for me, the reading, it takes you to other worlds, other dimensions. It fuels your creativity. Um, it's, as you said, it's, it's, it's food for the soul. And if you think about it, up to sort of third grade, we were learning to read and then from then on, for the rest of our lives, we're, we're reading to learn. You know, T.H. White, he talked about in The Once and Future King, uh, Merlin to the, to the young King Arthur said, you know, going on about infirmities and extremities. And, and if the whole world is against you, there's only one thing to do then. And that's to learn, oh, what a lot of things there are to learn. Well, you know, that's a book I hadn't thought about for a long time, but it could be on a list of the best hundred novels. Talk about an adventure, a completely absorbing adventure, yeah? Suddenly I want to go reread it when you said that. When you said that, I saw the, uh, the edition on a shelf in my house, and I was like, oh, i got to go to get that. Absolutely. So I, let me, I go, I have an odd experience with reading. I go through periods at, Quite often, or as long as a couple of years, in which I 
cannot get enough of reading, particularly uh, history, American history, American biographies. I mean, I, I will read any biography, new biography of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln that comes along because I'm so fascinated by them as individuals. And during those periods of time, I, fiction, I, my attitude about fiction is, well, I don't want to read a fake story. And then suddenly a, a light goes, uh, a switch goes on, and I'm saying, no, I need storytelling now. And suddenly those nonfiction books uh, are pushed to the side. I get, I so get what you're saying, Bill. And also because you and I are both in uh, jobs that require us to read a lot, yeah. the things that we have to read. So it sometimes feels like, uh, you know, a secret pleasure to read something, even a short story that feels like it's not related to work. But I get what you're saying. There's this kind of hunger for the experience in the lives of others. And that is one of the things that, you know, what did Ishmael Reed say? That a novel is a vaudeville show. It's the six o'clock news. It's the mumblings of wild men saddled by <laughs> demons. There's something transporting. All of you mentioned something about, you know, growing up in a place where fiction took you someplace else. And I think sometimes we need someplace else. And that is what is part of the beauty of reading something about somebody else that makes me imagine worlds and question things. I, I think that's a big thing. I'm looking at the list of books that uh, all of us contributed and thinking of, was it Milan Kundera said something about stupidity as men think that they have answers for mm -hmm. everything. Fiction asks questions of everything. And ultimately, I think living inside of the questions and the uncertainty is so much more interesting. I okay. mean, you, you know what happened to George Washington. He became president. Yes, he did. <laughs> you don't I've read that know. many times, over and over in the books I've read. Um, okay, how hard was it to pick your, your books? Oh, for me, it was incredibly easy. Uh, I, I first read The Lord of the Rings when I was 12, maybe 11 years old. And as soon as I got to the three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, and one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Ooh. That I mean, was this it. is unfair. He I just sounds hooked. so good talking about <laughs> I was, it. I was completely hooked, and it transported me into a whole universe. And I think perhaps Tolkien was one of the first people to, to coin the the modern sort of term that we see in movies now, the the movie universe. But he had a whole literary universe that he created, an entire parallel history of, of Northwestern Europe um, out of mythology. It was I phenomenal. mentioned before we came on the air that George R. R. Martin, who's part of the first episode of uh, The Great American Read, and who, of course, is the uh, author of the Game of Thrones series, which is on the list. Uh, he says there's no question Tolkien and uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, his all-time favorite uh, book. Chuck, was it hard for you? Uh, not not too bad. I One of the things that I wanted to do was, you know, I spend a lot of my time because of this magazine I run trying to figure out the culture of, of the South, and I thought it was important to pick a book— uh, it's modern and recent that addresses the, the reality of our region. Uh, and I just happened to have one that, that blew me away last year. Uh, and I picked that. Uh, I wanted to uh, talk about uh, uh, also, you know, how we wrestle with the South at all. And I think the prototypical and most monumental book Along those lines is Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. So that was easy for me. All right. We're going to come back and talk about individual books. But I just, for me, I mean, look, let's face it. When I ask you to pick your three favorite books, I'm not really asking you to put, 
I pick your three favorite. I'm asking you to pick three books that yeah. you love a great deal. And as I said to you all, you may all of a sudden uh, say, no, the book I really love isn't even what I sent you. <laughs> well, when I when you asked me to pick uh, my three favorite books, and then I was thinking, okay, maybe four, okay, maybe 17, okay, maybe 407, <laughs> my first thought was, this is like asking me to pick my favorite Beatles song. I can't do that. They're, you know. So I ended up thinking about, I've been writing historical fiction, and historical fiction matters a lot to me. So I sort of leaned in that direction you know, for my yes, choices. I, listen, Virginia, I know you know, you agonize. We're I just did. getting to know each other. Uh, <laughs> but I have learned that when you're asked a question, you take your time really trying to get down to knowing the answer. You I, are in agony trying to come up with the books. I'm not a list maker. <laughs> and, and you know what? That, that I, I actually um, maybe share something with our current president. The idea that, like the last thing that happened is my favorite thing. Like, you know, the interview that I'm doing at the time is the thing I'm really interested in. And the, the book that I'm reading at the time is the thing that I really want to read. Okay, I've got to get us... Uh, to a break. Uh, you've all done a wonderful job teasing us into the next segment when we'll pick a, some of the books uh, that uh, uh, you uh, chose uh, to put on the list today. I've got some favorites that I want to add to the list. So uh, again, you're listening to a live edition of Two Way Street, and uh, we're talking about our favorite novels. We want you to weigh in. Already, uh, Mickey Dubrow says Mother Night by Kurt Vonnegut, one of his. Josephine Bennett of our Bureau in Macon says East of Eden is hers. Daniel Langhorst sends to us a, a message saying, a book I read in grade school comes to mind as my favorite, Where the Red Fern Grows, a coming-of-age story oh, mm-hmm. from a simpler mm-hmm. time and a book that made me cry and forever made me a dog lover. So send us on the Two Way Street Facebook page your favorites and we'll try to include them. This is Two Way Street. Welcome back to uh, Two Way Street. Uh, Chuck Reese, uh, founder and uh, editor-in-chief of Bitter Southerner, you mentioned Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. I personally have never read Absalom. Is the rest of you read uh, uh, that book? I, I have read that one. And it's got a sort of Rashomon. This is what I remember. It was a long time ago, like a, from several different perspectives, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Very it, unreliable narrators. <laughs> Several unreliable narrators in the book. It's not surprising that you, steeped in Southern culture, would pick a Faulkner. But talk about why that book means so much to you. Well, I think the book really is the prototype for, you know, what we call the subject matter of all our stories, which is the duality of the Southern thing, a line we borrowed from songwriter Patterson Hood. But I I really do think Absalom is the best book about the duality of the Southern thing. It's about, you know, how people who grow up here with the weight of the unique history this region has wrestle with that, particularly when they go out into the outside world. And, you know, Absalom Absalom is also monumental from the perspective that it's it's really a a, a modernist book, you know, in that it's written. Once I figured out that he was writing all the voices in his narrator's head, that it really was stream of consciousness. Oh. Then that's when I fell in love with Absalom Absalom. When you find a book like that, when you find the key, you know, a lot of people would say Faulkner's impenetrable. 
Um, one of my favorite books on the list is uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison. I think most of us would agree with that pick. Um, and the same thing there. You've got to find the key. It's not easy reading. Uh, and once you find what you just said, that all of the voices are really coming out of the narrator's head, and it's, yeah. then you suddenly, that's your way in. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it deals with that question, the, the thing of his, you know, his relationship with his roommate at Harvard, Quentin Thompson, the young man who comes from Mississippi to Harvard. And, and, and these conversations he's having with Shreve, where Shreve wants to know about the South. And, but ultimately, Quentin just can't answer it. In the last line of the book, Shreve asks him, now I want you to tell me just one more thing. Why do you hate the South? I don't hate it, Quentin said, quickly, at once, immediately. I don't hate it, he said. I don't hate it, he thought, panting in the cold air, the iron New England dark. I don't. I don't. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. And he's, like, talking to himself, trying to, like, wrestle with who he is. You know what, Uh, Jessica, Mm -hmm. we go through that all the time. How do we reconcile um, the dark history of our region with the great cultural uh, totems that have come out of the South? How do you reconcile the great literature, the extraordinary music, the food, the traditions of the South played against the difficult history? The difficult it's really history. struggling. Uh, struggle. One of the books I picked, and before we go to that, I want to make an addition to what you were saying about Absalom, Absalom, which is my favorite Faulkner book, which is there's a quote about the substance of memory or what, what do we remember? And it ultimately says the brain um, recalls what the muscles grope for. Mm. The brain recalls mm-hmm. what the muscles grope for, which to me is a key to Faulkner and a key to what's happening in that book. Um, one of the many books I picked uh, is a, a current book called The Vain Conversation by um, Atlanta author Anthony Grooms. And uh, the novel is inspired by a true story, a lynching of two black couples in middle Georgia in the 1940s. And we were talking off mic about rotating point of view, how you get different characters speaking their truth or speaking their perspective. Um, I couldn't put the book down. And part of the reason for that, I think I read it in two sittings, uh, is because of the unrelenting glare of the truth of the story and the necessity of confronting our history you know, from various points of view. And um, I think it was a very important, it is a very important book for you know, that reason. So, um, I, you know, uh, Virginia, you, you've gotten to know the South over mm-hmm. the years. You're not coming here. I mean, you are from up north. You're from New Hampshire. That cold New England air yeah. that's... Uh, but you know about? the South. Iron. And I, rem- mm-hmm. I moved here in 1983. And the first piece of advice I got, and never thought of it when you read that ending of Absalom, Absalom, was read Feral Sam's Run with the Horseman. Mm-hmm. Feral Sam's a doctor in middle Georgia who wrote a trill- three novels about growing up in the South. They, the first one especially, Run with the Horseman, put it on your list because that book is all about a young man struggling to come to terms with the fact that he is different than his racist father. So mm. go ahead. You well, give us one. Well, what I was thinking, for one thing, I wanted to just mention the Jessica's Choice, The Vain Conversation. The, the, the novel itself, that title, is about the futility of having 
a conversation about race, how difficult it can be. And that is so chilling to me on some level, but in addition to the chilling violence that is actually in the book, because that is a book I have read. But that is what you're saying, Bill, is true. I came to know the South through literature before mm-hmm. I ever lived here. I lived in New Orleans for years, but it was their eyes were, were watching God was one of the eye-opening books for me in college. You know, it was about a woman acknowledging a young woman in Florida, acknowledging her own uh, eroticism, her own agency, her own place in the world, which was just sort of mind-blowing. And to me, that that pathway into the South was so different than the kind of, you know, uh, Spanish moss dripped magnolia, moonlight magnolia, exactly right. kind of thing that I had previously encountered in my image of the South. So you know, this is one of the things that novels give us—a a, a variety, a spectrum of perspectives that I think is so important in understanding the world in a very real and felt sense. Well, we're on the theme of the South, Kevin. Uh, Gone with the Wind is on this list. By it's no surprise that it would be. I've never ever read Gone with the Wind. I've seen the movie, like most people, countless times. And um, have you have you read it? I confess, I have never read has, Gone with the you, Wind. Have the rest of you read okay. it or not? No, well, I mean, this isn't a test. A long time ago. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, the reason I ask about it is that when I was watching the the first episode of this Great American Read, which you'll see next Tuesday night, uh, there's talk about the fact that people discount it, that it's a much, much better novel than people give it credit for because, pos- you know, because often when a book is so popular, we think there must be something wrong with it, you know? Well, uh, you, you have to look at Gone with the Wind outside of its value just as a literary work. Yes, of course. And that that's the problem I have with Gone with the Wind, yeah. because it's cemented in place uh, a mythological Old South narrative that, that is has plagued exactly us what to they this talk day. About on, that's exactly what mm-hmm. they talk about on the Maybe. show. Give us another one of your books, Kevin, because you are in a world of fantasy that I really appreciate. So uh, Frank Herbert's Dune oh. was oh. was the one that I read, read early on. And what, what fascinates me with Dune is it's actually got so much relevance to today. If you think about it, it deals with a very fractured and divided society with many different interest groups, uh, feudal, business, religious, you name it. And it deals with an incredibly fractured and divided universe that I think if uh, uh, to the listeners, I would encourage you all to go and read it and just think about, oh my goodness, it's also speaking about today. Well, I was thinking when you were talking about it, I read Dune when I was in college, and I loved that book. And it makes me think of what Margaret Atwood said about speculative fiction, that it could happen. And there are so Mm -hmm. many aspects of this that are happening now. Oh, absolutely. And and Frank Herbert was a genius. He sort of um, took away the technology aspect out of it, uh, thanks to the the Butlerian Jihad, which had happened a sort of a thousand years before Dune was set. Uh, there was no uh, computer technology. There was no uh, artificial intelligence that had all been done away with. And instead, it had to rely on, on humanity itself and, you know, the, a whole cast of men- mentalists, uh, human computers grew up. Everybody else read that book? I have not read it. Oh, oh, it's phenomenal. And you know what? It does have something in common in a way with uh, Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones uh, in that uh, Frank Herbert in this novel creates an entire world with very specific rules that different uh, people, different societies in the book live by. It takes place on a planet with no with almost no water. Yeah, the the planet June itself, um, you know, and Frank Herbert wrote the book uh, based on the the dunes of Oregon, where he'd spent some where he'd spent some time, 
Uh, and, you know, many people talk about it as the first sort of eco-science fiction book where it deals with sort of planetary catastrophe on an environmental ecological scale. Um, and it really was the, the first of its kind. One of the wonderful things about conversations like this to me is I'm not primarily a science fiction reader, although I do, I realize I do have some favorites, one of which is a, a sort of a rarity by Ira Levin called This Perfect Day. But in talking about books that I haven't read, I, I suddenly want to go read them. And that's the real joy of talking about books. Oh, I know about the book. I've never read it. Suddenly I want to. I know I've made a big list of all of the books that uh, <laughs> book you guys lust. have been talking about. But yeah, the only thing that, that is a problem when you do that, when, like if you're sitting around with your friends going, hey, you got to listen to this record, you can mm -hmm. put the record on. And if you say, hey, you got to read this book, you can't wait while they read it and then talk to you about it. longer than three and a half minutes. Right. Right. Yes. Especially because Jessica has one of these door stoppers here on the oh, desk. Yeah. She brought it in as a prop what? with her. You know what, Jessica, I am in awe of you. You picked John Sayles, the, the filmmaker. We yeah. mo most of us know John Sayles through his, his motion pictures. But you picked his novel, which got great attention, which re received yeah. great critical praise, but look at that thing. I wish we were on TV right it now. Is, <laughs> it is. It is. I'm going to verify. It is 900 and, hang on a minute, it's 956 pages of content. What's it and about? And what's it called? I love this book, and I could also crush my foot with it. Um, <laughs> this book is called A Moment in the Sun, and it is a monolith in physically as well as in content. Um, but it is a novel basically about our world at the end of the 19th century, and it touches on and spans a race riot in Wilmington, North Carolina, life in the Yukon during the gold rush, which is as raw as you would think, New York City during what was then the height of yellow journalism, um, the Spanish-American War, all kinds of other things, including uh, the electrocution of Topsy the Elephant, uh, which is a part I kind of have to skip. Um, but because Sales is a filmmaker, the writing is so uh, cinematic and he covers so much and it is such great dialogue and it takes you back to, takes me back to a place I have never been, which is America in the 1890s and the Philippines in the 1890s and Mexico and all kinds of things. And it's just a fabulous book. And yeah, you could definitely hurt somebody with this volume. Does, when you see a book that big, does it deter you from wanting to read it? Or do you think to yourself, oh, I'm so glad it's big because I'll spend a lot of time immersed in it? Uh, it does deter me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it, it, reminds me, it, it reminds me of how many times I've attempted to read Infinite Jest by oh. David Foster Wallace. Has anyone actually finished that book? I'm sure there are people who have, you know, and... Uh, I'm not you know, one of them. One day, you know, we're all going to have to get together and read Finnegan's Wake aloud so yeah. we can understand that. I, so. I, have, I have never made it all the way through War and Peace either. I have never made it to the end of that book. Yeah. I actually carried the Brothers Karamazov around for my first year of college because I was told that it would intimidate everyone. Did and that it? was a big, thick one. And I actually did read it in the end. That was a good one. But 2666, Roberto Bolaño. Never finished it. I've never been able to read a Bolaño novel. I, I admire you for even trying. Are there, okay, I haven't given, has everybody gotten one book? Have you, you haven't I, given a book or have you? Well, I, I should mention Mrs. Dalloway Mrs. because Dalloway. that was, that's like 170 pages long. Comparatively very, very short. And the way that I chose my books actually because I am not a maker of lists, I love the book I'm reading at the time generally. Uh, was by era. So I started with Persuasion when I was growing up. My mom used to read the classics to us. And so that was, you know, 
my my introduction to drawing room comedies and satires, that kind of thing. And then Mrs. Dalloway in college, that did kind of open up my whole world view. Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf. Chuck, who, what, why is Virginia Woolf so important in American literature? To me, I think Virginia Woolf is important in American literature because she she did things with her characters that, I mean, I don't consider myself a Wolf scholar by any well, means. Well, I'm not but asking in, you it, as a scholar. Well, it, you know, it's it, she had characters who existed in times and places who had some drive within them to break out of the situations in which society put mm-hmm. them. And, you know, it was a really, you know, to see women characters with the the, the power of, you know, and the drive of, of Mrs. Dalloway, for, for instance, is like, you no, know. Nicely done. Kevin, have you read uh, much Virginia Woolf? I have not, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, I haven't either. I fit Dalloway is maybe the only Virginia Woolf book I've read. Why well, is it to on the your Lighthouse list? was another great yeah. one. Well, because I think for me, it's just one it's stream of consciousness. And it's one day in the life of one woman. But as she's going to throw a party and as the evening closes in, you get more about other people. There's no plot twist. I mean, it's just a day. Mm-hmm. And, but there's also there is a dawning awareness of, of homosexuality on the char- part of one character. There's madness. There's class. There's. There's atheism, there's suicide. These are big things. And I guess as a young woman, I was looking at other people's interior and thinking, wow, they talk to themselves all day long, too. Well, I do that. <laughs> and this is happening while essentially she's going out to pick up flowers. Exactly. She's having yeah. a party. Yeah. Right. And she- it became the, the part of the basis for the adaptation of the book called The Hours by Michael Cunningham, I, which is also a great so film. First thing I thought about when I saw you put Dalloway on the list, that Michael Cunningham's novel, which tells us how three different women interact in one way or another with Mrs. Dalloway. You're nodding, Jessica. You know that book. It's a wonderful I know read. the book, and I know the Michael Cunningham book. I tend to defer to Virginia Woolf's nonfiction uh, mm-hmm. more than her fiction, just because that's more my origin story and, and what I start reading. Although she has a novel, kind of little known, called Orlando, <sighs> that I sometimes teach. Virginia, uh, <laughs> you know it. Um, and... It's a tremendous book, and it is a novel in which a character passes through time, through hundreds of years, beginning as a young boy, waking up as a woman, and then changes gender sort of fluidly throughout hundreds of years. Chuck, I put one, I mean, I have beloved Toni Morrison, the god of small things, Barundati Roy, who, and they're very similar in the sense that you have to read them very carefully because things happen as you read that you don't understand. And once again, there's a key. Once you realize that she will explain to you 50 pages later what was happening and you can piece it together, you found how to read the book. They're brilliant. But uh, I think of this because you do have um, Nick Hornby on your list, but Catch-22 is way up there. Joe Heller's book for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Hornby book, (laughs) I picked that you know, you, the question you put before us was what books mean the most to us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, there is nothing Southern at all <laughs> about high fidelity. doesn't have a thing to do with the South. But, you know, I, I, I was hooked. I, I mean, I, I, I was so hooked on that book. And, and it was actually the first Hornby I had ever read. Uh, and it was a music nerd 
friend who turned me on to it because, which is weird because my music nerd friends very rarely turn me on to books, you know, uh, and this book was just, it, it, hang on a second. I'm going to read you the very first sentence of it because the first sentence of it is incredible. My desert island all time top five most memorable split ups in chronological order. <laughs> yeah. One, Allison Ashworth. Two, Penny Hardwick. Three, Jackie <laughs> Allen. Four, Charlie Nicholson. Five, Sarah Kendrew. These were the ones that really hurt. <laughs> and, you know, music nerds are inveterate list makers. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just, I love that book so much because it was the first time I'd read a book whose pretty much all of the main characters I had brains that worked like mine did. Yeah. And yeah. and I, I just, you know, I read it over and over again because I, that book made me feel like I was hanging out with friends. Hornby wrote an essay in which he says, talking to a friend recently about the records that meant the most to me, and he goes on to say, there were so many that I, I listened to when I was a kid, and they still mean a lot to me. But then he says, it doesn't work like that with books for all sorts of reasons. The books that we read in our late teens and early 20s were important to us then, sometimes they don't hold up. And we've got to get to a break, but you and I sort of agreed about that. We we loved Catch-22. Yes. I still do, but it's not quite what it was. you got 10 seconds to say something about that. I knew every single character in that film, in that book, rather, for a long time, and then they just, it faded away. It wasn't as oh. important to me as others. All right. That's uh, our new On Second Thought host, Jessica, uh, Virginia Prescott. Uh, Olivia Rangel says, get to a break, Bill. Here we go. Welcome back to uh, Two Way Street. We're talking about favorite books uh, today, favorite novels, favorite fiction. Uh, Virginia Prescott on Second Thoughts, new host. Jessica Handler, a creative writing instructor at Oglethorpe. Chuck Reese, founder and editor-in-chief of the online magazine Bitter Southerner. Kevin Glass, uh, artist, actor, and headmaster of the Atlanta International School. When we talk Nick Hornby, Kevin... We're talking about the, where you grew up. My, my, my old country. So, yes, and, and, and the way that you talked about that, Chuck, that you're there with a group of friends uh, really resonated with me. And, you know, when you find a book that does that for you, it is phenomenal. So, you know, I'll go back to Tolkien, hanging out with the hobbits in the Shire and getting ready for Bilbo Baggins' 111th birthday party. <laughs> you know, when I was 11, 12 years old, I wanted to be there setting up that birthday party oh, yeah. in the Shire. Um, Kevin, how do the movies hold up for you, having been a lover of the novels? You know, so that's an interesting one. There's always the debate about whether the book is better than the movie or the movie is better than the book. And I always come down to my generalization here, forgive me, is that the books are always infinitely better than a movie because it's fueled by your own imagination, your own pictures and your own ideas that, 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 that are coming into it. With The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, I have to say, and Chuck and I were speaking a little bit about this before the, the show started today, I think they did a phenomenal job with the movies of, of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I completely agree. I am a sucker for a Lord of the Rings Sunday marathon on the Freeform channel. So. Jessica, you got another book for us? I do, but I'm going to take us away from Lord of the Rings and sort of into America and the Great Depression. So okay. really 180 degrees away. Um, I seem to be doing a lot of Atlanta authors here, although that's not true of John Sayles. Uh, the book 
On my list is Over the Plain Houses, which is by Atlanta author Julia Franks, um, also Hub City Press book. And I love reading about women who do the hard things and the tough things when their immediate culture or their society leans on them to do otherwise. And this novel takes place in North Carolina during the Great Depression. And I noticed I just said North Carolina. Um, and <laughs> a woman named Irene, who is married not entirely happily to a guy who is um, kind of becoming a fundamentalist. And she has got maybe a supernatural life going on out in the mountains, or people believe she does. And then she's also influenced by the outside world in the person of a female uh, USDA agent who comes in to the mountain community to kind of modernize them. Why is this book resonate for the you? The book resonates with me because, um, again, I was never a woman in the Great Depression, um, but because I really like stories about women, and I'm a woman, uh, <laughs> who need to change or understand who we really are and what is the world telling us versus what do I really want? Who am I inside yeah. when, when the noises around me stop? Okay. You got another book for us, Virginia? Yes, I do. Uh, Americana. This is by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Mm -hmm. She's a Nigerian artist. I just thought this was a brilliant book about really the construct of race in America. She is uh, from Africa, and she's writing as a woman who comes from Africa to the United States. And I've actually worked quite a bit in West Africa and Southern Africa, especially. So maybe looked at it a little bit through that perspective. But she is just so archly funny on uh, internet media, the way that Americans appear to everybody else. She really gets it and describes them so well. And also coming from Africa is expected to have all of these kind of uh, from African-Americans to have these ideas and concepts about who she is in the world. And she realizes she doesn't have them. So you <laughs> get to see how it is a, it is a cultural concept. Uh, this is a good moment for me to uh, bring in three other guests who we have on tape. Um, uh, many of you know here that on GPB television, we have a wonderful program called A Seat at the Table, which is a program about conversations among three extraordinary African-American women talking about their life experiences, about the culture, about the problems they face. And uh, they were here taping uh, a, a new show yesterday. And while they were here, we got a chance to ask them to uh, share with us their favorite book. So we're just going to play all three of them back to back. I'm Monica Pearson of A Seat at the Table. And one of my favorite books on the list of the great American read is Alice Walker's The Color Purple. Oh. This book just takes your breath away. Strong black women. But it's not just about black women. It's about relationships, how we conquer and how we always find a way out of no way. But also about this book, I think, to show you its universality. The fact that it was turned into a movie that was award winning and then into a musical on Broadway. That tells you the power of the written word and how even in her writing, the music came through. I love this book, and it should be required reading for everybody, particularly when you talk about the relationship between men and women. So anyway, you need to read it. I love it. I'm Deneen Milner, a co-host of A Seat at the Table and the six-time New York Times bestselling author. The book that I really love is Tar Beach. 
by Faith Ringgold, who is this phenomenal uh, artist who um, does story quilts. And Tar Beach is based on a story quilt that she did. And it's about a little girl um, named Cassie Mae Lightfoot who imagines that anything that she flies over is hers. And so she lives in New York. And in New York, when you live in brownstones, at the top, the top of the brownstones are um, covered in tar. And so when you have access to the roof, you go up to the roof and you're on a beach. Get it? Like the, the sun is shining down on you and you can tan. And so Cassie Mae Lightfoot has a huge picnic with her next door neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Honey. And they go up and she lays down with her brother and she imagines that she's flying over the George Washington Bridge, which in her mind is a giant necklace. And I think that it's just such a beautiful celebration of of New York, which is where I'm from. It's a beautiful celebration of a little girl's imagination. It's a beautiful celebration of family, community, um, and a love of where you live, a love of home. My name is Christine White, and I am a co-host at The Seat at the Table. One of my favorite books on the Great American Read list is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. This book is beautifully written in the voice of a Southern woman as she comes to age and starts to understand what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a lover, what it means to be a member of her community. I learned so much about um, feminism from this book. I learned so much about the trials and tribulations of love and, and having high expectations for yourself as a woman. I think that the book also gives us so much insight into what America was like during the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. One of my favorite reads. All right, anybody have any reaction to what they heard? I love the description of Tower uh, Beach. Oh my gosh. It makes me want to read that book oh, pretty badly. Yeah, no, absolutely. is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I also thought about when she said the music really comes through in Toni Morrison's writing. We haven't talked a lot about language. We've talked about yeah. plot and imagination and sort of world building, but language. And Bill, uh, one of your choices, Arundhati Roy's The oh. God of Small Things, the language is just beautiful in yeah. that book. Yeah. You want to say something about that book? Because well, I do. Let me say something real quick. Go ahead. God of Small Things is I, I, just stunning. I got to the last chapter of that book finished it, and was, I dissolved in tears. Yeah. And I turned a little later in the evening to my wife, and I said, you better, you have to sit down. I'm going to give you a little, tell you a little bit about the book. I'm going to read to you the last chapter of this book, because it is one of the most beautifully written uh, pieces I've ever read in my life. And she listened to the whole thing, which tells you, Kevin, I'm married to a good woman. You are married <laughs> to a great lady. To Did a she great cry? lady. Go ahead, Sophie. Chuck, you well, want no, to I, I, I was just going to riff a little bit on what Virginia was saying about the, the beauty of language. I've, I've, I've had this, I don't know if it's a joke or what, but I've, I've said for a good long time now that, yes, you cannot judge a book by its cover, but you can, however, judge it by its first sentence. Oh, great. Great and, observation. Uh, so one book I want to talk about here is written by a man who's about 20 years younger than me and lives in a little bitty place called Webster, North Carolina, up in the mountains. His name is David Joy. And when his second novel, The Weight of This World, came out last year, um, I was invited by um, Acapella Books to interview him about the book when his book tour was coming through town. So I was like, okay, i got to read this book. 
And I read the first sentence, and it instantly burned itself into my memory. I never forgot it. I've been telling everybody since then, you have to read this book because the first sentence grabs you so hard. And the first sentence is, Aiden McCall was 12 years old the one time he heard, I love you. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah. The one time. Do you have experience with the language of the books you read, Kevin? Oh, absolutely. And um, the poetry that I'll go back to Tolkien, that that he weaves into his his mythology, he he was actually quoted as saying, and this probably comes from the fact that he had real devout faith and he was a great student of, of Old English and Celtic English and old languages, as well as the mythology of Northwestern Europe. And so his love of mythology and his faith came together. And he said that he believed that mythology to be a divine echo of the truth. Mm. And I love that oh. quote from, from Tolkien. And he weaves this into his, his writing so, so beautifully. Yeah, that's great. The, the wonderful thing is that so many of his manuscripts have been sort of found and, and, and published by his son, Christopher. And the most recent one being The Lay of... Luthien and Beren, which is a great epic love story set in, in, in Middle Earth. And Luthien was one of the most beautiful daughters of Villaveta, daughter of the elven king. And Beren was just a mere, a mere mortal. And ultimately, they, they fell in love, and their love even conquered death. And what's, what's fascinating is that on Tolkien's gravestone uh, for him and his wife, Edith, and I've, I've actually found it here. It says, Edith Mary Tolkien, Luthien, 1889 to 1971. And John Ronald Ruel Tolkien, Baron, 1892 to 1973. So she Aww. was uh, Luthien to his Baron. Oh, well, that's nice. Um, Joe Heller, I've talked to Catch 22. Joe Heller has, to, it used to, he's passed away, he's dead now, uh, said to people the way he found his way into writing Catch-22 was the first sentence of the book came to him, and that sentence is, it was love at first sight. The first time Yosarian saw the chaplain, he fell madly in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, do you have a favorite uh, uh, book in terms of language, lyricism? I'm sitting here thinking about first lines and, you know, waiting for, I'm just trying to come up with perfect first lines, and... Um, what is the one about the clock struck 13? Oh, I don't know. You want oh, me to look it up for you yeah, real quick? Yeah, please. I feel like an idiot. I no, should know this. Don't, but, don't, no, no, um, <laughs> yeah, because that's stunning. But I'm looking at, because um, I brought props with me, but one of my favorite books also for language is A Death in the Family by James Agee, mm. who also wrote mm. another book I love, which is Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. And one of the reasons, I mean, that's a problematic book for various reasons, but oh, yeah. Agee, who was a screenwriter and a um, what do you call it, a movie reviewer and a novelist, and he won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. His language is just stunning. And I'm looking at a part here from A Death in the Family, which is sort of a, a proto-memoir. It's an autobiographical novel. But there's a section here that I can't read because I don't know how to say it. But I'm showing it here to Chuck Reese next to me. It is two pages about the sound that a car makes trying to start Um and can you even read that? I don't even know. It's fabulous. Where, where do you want it's, me to start? Uh, I'd pick a part. But there's just beautiful, beautiful language and humor and the elegance of A.G.'s language along with what we're looking at here, which is uh, sort of how a car starts trying to, how a car starts to, well, sounds trying to start. Yeah, we're going to let readers find that oh, for okay, themselves. Good. By the yeah. way, the book you are referring 
I'm almost certain, to the first line of George Orwell's 1984. Of course which I is, am. it was a bright, cold day in April, and the clock stro- was striking 13. 13. That, that is if a that, Virginia, number. does not immediately make you unsettled, give you a sense that something is wrong in this dystopian world, it's really powerful. It's it, world-building. It is world-building. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about language. Cormac McCarthy yeah. comes to mind for yeah. beautiful oh, language, yeah. but also the uh, the great first line, Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Anna Karenina. Anna Karenina. You know, okay, so that raises a question. I'm going to get, I want to be a little cynical here. Uh, There are some books on the hundred great books that people have picked. I want to speculate. I'm not sure I believe that enough people really read them to vote on. So glad you said that. Okay, so Moby Dick. Have, who's read Moby Dick? I never had. I oh, hands really? Up. Call me Ishmael. Oh my yes. God! So three in here. Chuck and I know I, Olivia I, Wrangle I, in the control mm-hmm. room has read it. I own the paperback copy I bought in college, and I still haven't cracked. <laughs> I, I love that. Um, I want to play something. We have. Do we have that clip now, uh, Olivia? Um, you know, this week it's it's ironic that um, as we prepare to this show on uh, great novels that uh, Tom Wolfe died. He was 88, I think. And um, late last year, uh, we got a chance to talk to him. We talked to him because 2018 was the 20th anniversary of the publication of A Man in Full, his book about Georgia. And uh, we got that on tape late last year. We just played it on the air a few weeks ago. And because there's a section of the conversation in which he really talks about novels, I thought it would be interesting kind of as a tribute to him, to play what he had to say. We were talking first about the first book set in New York, followed 11 years later by Man in Full, and here's what we talked about. I had written The Bonfire of the Vanities, mm-hmm. mainly to show myself and anyone who had their doubts that I wasn't writing this nonfiction form, the, the new journalism, because I couldn't write fiction. I said, all right, I'll show them I can write fiction. And then I was going to go right back to nonfiction because I think nonfiction uh, was the most significant American literature of the second half of the 20th century. With all the success of that book, 20 years later, how do you reflect upon that if you reflect upon it at all? It seems, as the saying goes, like only yesterday. I can't believe that 20 years have gone by. And I, I, you know, you, you, you like to feel that if a book is successful, that is due to your genius as a, an artist. But in fact, so much of it depends on the material that you have. I mean, I, I happen to believe that each person's life is like an exclamation point sitting out in the middle of a field somewhere. That's, Tom, isn't that a lovely thought, Jessica? A person's an, life, life is an exclamation, an exclamation point, point sitting, sitting in, in the field. middle of a field? Yeah. That's wonderful. Kevin, tell your story about why you encountered Man in Full. So we were living in Tashkent, Uzbekistan in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I was, my wife was the consul there for, for Germany, and I was the director of Tashkent International School. And we had just uh, received word that we'd been given the job here in Atlanta as headmaster of Atlanta International School, and a parcel arrives for Stephanie at the, at the German consulate. Your and wife. It was, uh, my wife, Stephanie, thank you. And it was, in fact, a copy of A Man in Full. So mm. clearly, 
Uh, the folks here in Atlanta wanted me to start uh, doing some homework before I arrived Yeah, I don't in know, Chuck, Atlanta. fairly distorted way to think about Atlanta. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what was going through my head, you know, because it... But the thing about A Man in Full is that it, it captured... You know, Wolf was always fascinated, particularly when, you know, he got into working on Bonfire... He was always fascinated by the wealthy, and he did such a good job of capturing the way they think. I got to cut you off. You got the last word. We've had such a good conversation that I'm completely out of time. Thank you all for being with us on Two Way Street today. See you again tomorrow for a Political Rewind. Bye-bye.